You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. So do me a favor and open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 17. You're going to be looking for verse 9 in the Gospel of John chapter 17. That's page 738 in your pew Bible. Or if you brought your own Bible, you know where that is. And if you're using a phone or a tablet and you use the YouVersion Bible app, follow those instructions. It'll take you right to our scripture this morning. And as you're getting to John 17, we, one of the things the Gospels share with us one of the things we learn from the Gospels is that Jesus had a consistent and vibrant prayer life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John offer us several glimpses of Jesus' regular conversation with his Father. In the Sermon on the Mount, as you know, Jesus even teaches us how to pray. But as we talked about last week, we never really get to hear the specific content of Jesus' prayers. That is until we come here. To John chapter 17. This single chapter in all the Gospels is unique for us because here, as Jesus arrives at the Garden of Gethsemane, we are privileged, we are privileged to listen in as Jesus the Son speaks to the Father. What is said here are Jesus' final words before he is betrayed and arrested in order to be handed over to his death. This speech, which is lifted up to heaven, The longest prayer, by the way, recorded in the Bible has three parts. Last Sunday, we reflected on the first part in which Jesus prays for himself, for the Father's glory to be revealed through him, and for the glory of God to be revealed through those who follow him. Today, we're going to focus on the remaining two sections of this prayer, and I'm really going to cover the the final section in detail, but in the second movement, if you have those Bibles open, in the second movement of this conversation between the Son and the Father, verses 9 through 19, Jesus intercedes, as you can see, on behalf of his original disciples. Again, Peter, James, John, Matthew, Andrew, the ones that he'll be sending out as his first apostles. Jesus prays for their protection as they are about to be without him, particularly in terms of what they're about to face with his crucifixion. Jesus, as you can see there, prays for their sanctification, their blessing, and that they will remain in this world and they will share the news of his resurrection, the invitation of the gospel. But then at verse 20, if you're looking at it this morning, then at verse 20, Jesus does something remarkable, something very encouraging. If you're not reading it, you can see it on the slide. Jesus prays, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. All of a sudden, Jesus looks towards the future, shifts his prayer to include followers who are yet to come. Those who will believe in him through the inspired word and witness of the apostles. Those who will receive the gospel of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of the world and pass on this message and this invitation from generation to generation. In other words, Jesus prays for you and for me. This is remarkable. Even though we are not stated by name, 
Here, in this moment, Jesus has his eyes, focuses his heart on each one of us. And what specifically does our Lord pray for us? It's a great question. Today, this, today's message is going to be focused on this question. I'm going to share exactly what it is Jesus prays for us, how it happens, and finally, why it matters. Now, as we read through the Gospels, we follow Jesus for three years. Three years worth of teaching, performing miracles, interacting with various people, entering into different situations, and offering examples of his life, which he is about to sacrifice for the sins of the world. Given all of this that we have, thinking of all the possible prayer requests, what might we expect for Jesus to ask for on our behalf? For all of our theology to be in agreement? For all of our worship traditions, preferences, and practices to be the same? For all matters of church governance, ministries, and programs to be relevant, appealing, and successful? What do we imagine? Think about that for a second. What would you imagine is Jesus' burden, his passion, the desire of his heart for us? Knowing that Jesus prays for you, for me, that Jesus prays for us, what would you ask Jesus to pray for, for you? Would you pray that, ask Jesus pray that I would have wealth and health and prosperity? Would we pray, Jesus pray that we'd always be happy, never be uncomfortable, and want for nothing? The thing is, Jesus prays for none of these things. Jesus prays for the last thing some of us would ever think to pray for, something that most of us never think to pray for. What is it? Let's listen. Jesus prays that all of them, that's us, may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus prays for our unity. Jesus prays that we, all of us, all who follow him, all who declare themselves to be a part of his body, the church, all who purport to represent his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, that we, all of us, would be one. And you can hear Jesus' sense of urgency in praying this way. It's underscored by the fact that he repeats this theme of unity four times within six verses. Which, of course, leads us to ask, what does Jesus mean by unity? What does Jesus mean when he asks that all of them may be one? Well, the first thing that's obvious, the first thing that becomes obvious from Jesus' prayer is that to be a follower of Jesus is to be part of a greater whole. What's implied by Jesus' prayer, and certainly reinforced, I think, by the coming and work of the Holy Spirit as revealed in the book of Acts, is that Christianity is a team sport and not a solo venture. Community in Christ is all over the pages of the next chapter of the story of the gospel as the good news about Jesus Christ is spread to the ends of the earth. And this is critical for us to hear today because more and more professed followers of Jesus are seeking to follow Jesus on their own, apart from a specific community 
specifically divorced from the church. There are all kinds of reasons for this growing trend. Some of you may know people who are, who are adopting this posture. I believe in Jesus, I follow him, but I'm not part of any church. I'm not part of any community in Christ. This is a growing trend, and there's several reasons for this. Some of them are very understandable. I mean, the church, if we're honest, has had and has given more than enough of its share of bumps and bruises, often painfully inflicted upon those within her company. The church has had too many glaring incidents of being hypocritical, being abusive, of ultimately not living up to her calling, not honestly reflecting the glory, the character of the one in whom we confess we believe. Too many people have been burned by the church or just plain burned out. And we need to recognize this. We need to recognize this where we have driven people away rather than making them feel at home. And we need to repent of such behavior if we ever want them to come back. There are some understandable reasons why people have nothing to do with the church anymore. And then there are other reasons for not being a part of the church that have less credibility, that owe more to personal comfort and convenience than anything else. I mean, being too busy being overcommitted, or just plain prioritizing over other things over making time to regularly gather together, to support, to be accountable, to serve alongside other believers in Christ by convincing ourselves we can follow Jesus alone without being connected to his body, the church, that is all just self-justification and not biblical truth. The way Jesus prays here the way Jesus speaks of the purpose and work of the Holy Spirit, there are no solitary Christians. There can be no spiritual lone rangers. So unity to begin with means we must, as the later writer of the letter to the Hebrews puts it, not give up on meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but instead encouraging one another, spurring each other on towards love and good deeds. Unity means, if anything else, to be a follower of Jesus is to be a part of a greater whole, to be a part of the bride of Christ, the church, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do we part. Okay. So, Jesus' prayer for unity is first and foremost a call to come and be together rather than flying solo. But we press in further. I mean, what does Jesus mean by all of us being one? I mean, does that mean we all have to get along all the time? Is this some sort of call for constant agreement and accord among believers? I mean, is Jesus praying for us to all hold hands and sing kumbaya and ignore or dismiss all of our cultural, our ethnic, our theological, political, social differences and come together and just put forth a united front? I mean, that's what we often think of when we think of unity. When we think of unity, that's where we go. We, we think in terms of equal anonymity. Unanimity. Or to put it another way, we, when we think of unity, the only way we can perceive that we can be one is for all of us to always agree with one another. I mean, humanly speaking, that's the kind of unity we settle for if we're seeking unity at all. A forced unity where everyone conforms to a single, singular way of thinking, speaking, and acting. Where all adhere to the exact same traditions and patterns. 
this is not what Jesus prays for. Jesus does not seek a feigned unity based on conformity where all are forced into the same mold in terms of their understanding and expression of their faith in him. Jesus, not just in this prayer, but throughout his teaching and ministry, calls us not to live out of conformity. Jesus calls us to live out of conviction, our belief that he is the Savior and Lord of the world. Jesus does not appeal for all of us to put on a brave face and present a united front, stifling all of our differences and disagreements. I mean, look at the original 12 disciples Jesus called to follow him. Their backgrounds were not all the same, and neither were their perceptions and opinions of him in terms of what they experienced with Jesus. I mean, these guys couldn't agree on anything, right? In the aftermath of Jesus' crucifixion, as we know, and later his resurrection, they're not all going to respond the same way. Peter's going to deny everything. John's going to hang back and observe for a difference until he finally makes his way to the foot of the cross. The rest of them are going to run and hide behind closed doors until Jesus shows up again. And then Thomas is still going to have his doubts even after that happens. What I'm saying is Jesus calls us knowing we have many differences between us. Being God, Jesus created us with all that diversity. Jesus created us with the diversity of how we physically look, how we conceptually perceive and process, how we functionally experience and practice life on this planet. Jesus created us with our different voices and ideas. Jesus expects us to have divergent opinions and therefore strong principled disagreements with each other. In this prayer, Jesus, in fact, envisions a unity that comes in the midst of the tremendous diversity of our cultures, our backgrounds, and our experiences. Jesus prays for unity that comes in the midst of that diversity, not at the cost of it. Unity in the midst of diversity. Unity despite our differences? Really? Come on. That doesn't exist. We don't even know what that looks That doesn't exist. That's impossible. I mean, Je- I mean come on. Jesus is having a pipe dream here. Jesus is lifting up a pipe dream to heaven. Unity in the midst of diversity, unity when we have differences, can't happen. Not possible. We might be tempted to think that. But let us listen more carefully and notice exactly how Jesus describes this unity. Here it is again. As the slide comes up on the screen, I want you to pay attention to the highlighted part of the text. Father, as the slide comes up on the screen, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. And then he goes on, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. This prayer for the unity of his followers is not just some wishful thinking on the part of Jesus. As we move now to the question of how this unity happens, the answer is this oneness Jesus invokes is rooted in the very nature of God. It is envisioned to be patterned after the unity of God, the relationship between what we have called in the church the Trinity. That's a big concept, and I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of the Trinity that's going to probably lead to more questions, and that's okay. But here's the thing when we talk about the Trinity. From from different extended glances at God at work given to us in the Bible, we have come to perceive our Creator as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. However, through the teachings, example, and the prayers of Jesus like this one, 
we have further come to understand what we perceive as as three persons of God exist as one. The diversity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit does not leave them in tension or separation from each other, as diversity often does with us. Instead, these three persons who are God exist in beautiful and perfect symmetry, united through their mutual and reciprocal love for each other. It's out of this reciprocal and perfect love of the Trinity that's extended to us that Jesus prays for his followers to be united. Just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one, together in complete harmony, undivided and indivisible from each other, we are to be one. In other words, this unity that Jesus speaks of, that Jesus prays for, is created by God's own work of binding us to himself. I mean, guys, this is the gospel, right? This is the gospel. Our creator desired unity both with us and between us so much that the word became flesh. God became one of us. By the grace and mystery of the incarnation, through the life, the teaching, example, and most importantly, the reconciling and saving work of Jesus for us on the cross and through the resurrection, we are both invited and drawn into the oneness of God. Thanks to the gift of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, we receive the gift of faith, the will to follow Christ, the power to be transformed, to enter more deeply and fully into the life of our triune God. And the thing is, this unity Jesus prays for is to be ours now. Most of us read this prayer, we read this prayer and assume that Jesus is pleading for something that will happen later on, some anticipated future unity. But what's interesting and compelling is the actual grammatical construction that Jesus uses here that we've translated into English. In the original language, the actual grammatical construction, when Jesus prays, he prays for us to continually be one. Jesus, in other words, is not praying for a unity that will come to pass at a later time. Someday, eventually, Jesus invokes a unity that already exists a unity which has always been the case. Because Jesus, again, through this prayer, is inviting us into the unity of God. What that means is, beloved, this oneness Jesus prays for is not some artificial reality. It's not some humanly engineered enterprise or confederation. What Jesus anticipates for us is on a level far beyond the kind of unity that we conceive in names like the United States or the United Kingdom. This oneness is not something that can be created by committee actions, council resolutions, or church pronouncements. It's not something that can be administratively manufactured or contrived. It is possible. It is real. It is true. It is ours now, only by the grace of God. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking because I had to think about it too. What does this look like practically? I mean, am I just supposed to sit and wait for the Spirit to suddenly empower me towards unity? 
Is this just a matter of being overcome with the Lord's presence and he changes us? My friends, all good things are by the grace of God. All that we have, all we can become are by the grace of God. The Father initiates. Christ leads. The Spirit directs. But hear this. We have to follow. While the Lord works in and through us, we respond by working out the gift of our salvation, the grace of our common union with fear and trembling, in awe and wonder. Our unity together comes by each of us and all of us together by welcoming and yielding before the one who comes to dwell, who comes to live more fully and deeply in us. Jesus laid the foundation for this prayer way back in chapter 15. Pastor John preached on this several weeks ago when Jesus talked about this sense of abiding, abiding in the divine love. What he was invoking there is a picture of abiding in the personal intimacy of the Trinity. And when we abide in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we discover at last who we were created to be, who we truly can be, who we are behind and beyond our ego. We discover our precious, significant, fearfully and wonderfully made and redeemed selves in Christ. But the thing is, abiding is an intentional action. Abiding is making room. Abiding is dedicating time and attention Abiding is listening and following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son and the Father. The work of the Holy Spirit is like a tra heart transplant. We are emptied. We die to ourselves, the darkness of selfishness, and we're liberated from the walls built by fear, shame, and rage, walls that separate us from God, walls that separate us from each other, walls that separate us from ourselves, walls that prevent everlasting life from flowing forth in us. But we have to abide. And abiding not only is an intentional action, when we abide, abiding changes us. And the signs and evidence of our transformation are we begin to see. By God's grace, we become, we become to know. We reach out and love others as God sees, as God knows, as God loves them. We welcome them as God welcomes them. Unity leads to the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. Peace from the struggle against the insecurity within and our perceived rivals around us. Peace from the struggle against loving those whom we don't like or understand. Peace from needing to be right, from having to prove we're right. Unity brings us the contentment of knowing God is right, that our righteousness is found in Christ alone and not our self-defense. Bonded together in Christ, we become vulnerable with each other. And eventually, inevitably, we no longer see them. We only see us. And we delight in each other. We delight in each other. We delight for the other. We delight because we are together. One in Christ. Because Christ is in us. This is how it happens. And this leads us to the question of, well, why does it matter? 
Why does it matter? Why does Jesus pray with such urgency for us to be one in him? From Jesus' own words. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Then the world will know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. You see, the unity Jesus seeks is not an end in itself. Our oneness in Christ is what propels us in mission. Jesus prays for our unity to be assigned to the world of God's love for everyone. All the way back, you remember this? All the way back in chapter 13 of John, when this evening, this whole evening started, Jesus pointed to self-giving love as the critical identifying mark of his followers. They will know you follow me if you love each other as I have loved you. Now, here, Jesus offers another critical identifier, not one by which to recognize his followers, but one by which to identify him before the world. One that would reveal to the world who Jesus is. So let me break this down for you. Our calling as followers of Jesus is to reflect the self-sacrificing, servant-oriented, unconditional love of God come down in Christ. But the message of our mission of being a blessing to others in the name of Jesus is only given credibility as we are rooted in our unity together as followers of Jesus. Love and unity don't stand in competition. They're complementary. One precedes the other. Loving others like Jesus is the natural outgrowth of together being one in Christ. You know, knowing the state of the world today, I mean, seriously, if you stop and think, knowing the state of the world today, as divided and as divisive as it is out there, where the lines of separation between us are repeatedly emphasized, where more and more our relationships are less based on trust and more based on fear. We don't trust each other, we fear each other. More and more as we consider the state of the world today, we have every conceivable reason to show the world that followers of Jesus are one of one love, of one heart, thanks to Christ. In a world that is aching for reconciliation and restoration. Do you feel it? Do you sense it? Can you pull back from the temptation to just buy into the outrage, to just buy into the anger? Can you feel underneath a world that is aching for reconciliation and restoration? A world that is in that state, the tangible expression of the truth of the gospel is the only prescription so what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Why does this kind of unity escape us? Why, as followers of Jesus, are we so divided, so fractured? Why do we keep separating and splitting from each other over theological details, worship practices and traditions, and evangelical focus? Why? Is it because we've given up on being united? Or maybe it's because we've convinced ourselves being right is more important than being one. My friends, being a part of a community, even one rooted in love, there can and there will be disagreements and squabbling. That's family. 
We're imperfect. We're works in progress. Hear this. The world understands that. The world isn't put off by Christians who disagree and argue. They get it. But when we play who's on first with our faith, when I claim my faith is better than your faith, truer than your faith, I'm not looking outward, I'm looking inward. I'm protecting myself rather than risking loving and serving others through our faith in Christ. If we are always at one another's throats arguing over who is most perfectly following Jesus, then none of us is really following Jesus at all. If we choose to erect and defend theological or ideological barriers, whether on the basis of class, ethnicity, race, age, or gender, barriers that deny anyone in this whole beautiful yet broken world full participation in the kingdom of God, we are committing malpractice against the truth of the gospel. And we have to understand this. As the church we will be held accountable by what we allow to separate and divide us. We will be held accountable for those we ignore, shame, or reject from receiving the love of Christ. This unity that Jesus invokes in this prayer is the oneness that's contained in that ancient foundational Jewish prayer known as the Shema. Do you remember it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Yahweh is one. Our unity comes from the one and only God. There is no other God. Not politics, not economics, not theological doctrines, not religious traditions. Nothing else can take Yahweh's place. And beloved, the world cannot be persuaded by something it cannot see. The way Jesus prays here, he is speaking about a unity visible enough to be noticed, strong and attractive enough to bring conviction to an observing world. Our unity doesn't come from dogma or doctrine or denominations. Our unity comes from our communion in Christ. Our unity comes from our need of God, for God, with every fiber of our being. And our unity comes from the fact that all of us, broken as we are, all of us in need of this God, receive the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Our unity comes from our communion in Christ, loving Jesus more dearly by following Christ and loving others more and more fearlessly. What the world needs to see is followers of Jesus coming together for the sake of something bigger than our disagreements. Our unity is most visible when we work together rather than compete against each other, when we partner with each other for the sake of those in need, as we serve the hungry and the thirsty, as we visit the sick or those in prison, as we welcome the stranger, as we clothe the naked, as we heal the hurting. That's when people see Jesus Because that's when they don't see division. That's when they see the unity of the church in Christ. My friends, Jesus doesn't leave behind an ideal or a program. Jesus leaves behind a community. A community that exists not because of the decision of its members, our faith, our insight, or our moral excellence, Jesus leaves behind a community that only exists, 
that stands because of the reality of the transformative unity of God, the oneness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are one in Christ, whether we agree with each other or not. We are one in Christ, whether we like each other or not. To become a part of Christ is to become a part of the community called the church. And we are to be one in Christ. So the world may know Jesus is risen. Jesus lives. Jesus is Lord and Savior of all. We are the branches dwelling in the vine that is Jesus. And as we abide in the vine, we bear the fruit of the vine, which is the fruit of the Spirit. That's what the world is hungry for. That's what the world is longing to see. That's how the world sees Jesus, through our peace and joy, through our mercy and kindness, through our goodness and faithfulness, through our gentleness and self-control, and most of all, through our love, all expressed through our unity in Christ. That's what Jesus prays for. That's it. That's what Jesus prays for. Let us, by the grace of God, together be the answer to Jesus' prayer. Amen.